Hello. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. I'm David Osman, and with me again today is Brian Pellegrini of Intertemporal Economics. Our subject for this podcast is US monetary policy struggling to catch up with inflationary pressures. The Independent Research Forum promotes an extensive range of high quality independent research and data providers from around the world, both micro and macro. Some are stock pickers, some sector specific, some country specific, many are global and all are investment related. Abundant global liquidity, supply chain disruptions and high energy prices have combined to inflame inflationary pressures at a time when the economic recovery from the COVID pandemic is still fragile and uncertain. Central banks around the world face difficult choices with respect to the trade-off between employment and inflation, none more so than the US Federal Reserve. Monetary policy is becoming less accommodative, but how tight will it become? How high will interest rates have to rise in this tightening cycle? To discuss these questions, I'm very pleased that we're joined today by Brian Pellegrini, who is the founder of Intertemporal Economics and the firm's senior analyst. Brian founded Intertemporal Economics in 2018. Previously, he worked with Bernard Connolly as a senior analyst at Connolly Insight, where he specialized in geopolitical event risk, monetary policy, labor markets, and energy arguably the perfect combination to address the current situation facing investors in the world today. Brian, welcome back. Let's begin with a brief introduction to the advisory service that is provided by Intertemporal Economics. Thanks very much for having me back, David. It's great to be here. Um, So that was a great introduction. Um, I like to think of my research service as a macro risk advisory and portfolio solutions service, right? So it's written research. um, But what I'm focused on is the factors that will come up in the next three to 18 months that investors, business people, whoever is interacting with the economy is going to are going to need to be thinking about and understanding uh, in in, in the near to medium term horizon. Um, And so I focus on factors that uh, I feel are either not being covered at all, or are being misunderstood by uh, market participants, right? So I don't produce point forecasts, which we've seen recently are effectively useless um, in times other than where things are just going along naturally uh, and, and prediction is easy. So what I'm doing is helping um, my clients understand the economic principles behind what is driving the situation that they're living through. And that allows them to make better business decisions, better investment decisions. Um, And then as part of that, um, I also advise actively trading clients on um, positions they should take uh, uh, to maximize um, performance while at the same time not breaking the bank, uh, which is just as important uh, to not go bust. Um, And so, um, as you said, it's 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 a great time for that sort of service because the normal... Um, point forecasts 
they can't help you when all of a sudden with the stroke of a pen, someone can suddenly change the rules of the game. For example, the, you know, there's a trillion and a half of student loan debt in the United States that, that's hanging in the balance and may or may not just disappear. So those are the sort of things where only a fundamental analysis that is based on logic uh, and that utilizes Austrian theory uh, is able to provide an understanding of the situation and make better decisions. Can the U.S. central bank achieve its 2% per annum average inflation target without creating an economic recession in 2022 through to 2025? Well, I think they, uh, they might pass it on the way, but they're going to have to implement policy in a, in a way that, that is completely new for the Fed uh, in, in recent history. Um, I believe the Fed is going to have to implement yield curve control um, in their tightening process. Uh, and this is a, a topic I've been looking at um, in great detail over the past four to six months, really, uh, with growing interest as the yield curve is flattened. Because that's really what this is all about, is that the Fed needs to tighten. And interest rates are, quote unquote, low, but there is no one interest rate, right? Uh, uh, we operate with a yield curve and, and different types of investors inhabit different parts of the yield curve. And most of the lending that goes on, whether it's in banks or in the bond market, is leveraged lending. So you're borrowing at the short end, you're lending at the long end. And that's why the level of rates that the Fed sets might be very, very low. But the level of uh, interest rates that the banks are able to charge without putting all their clients out of business is not all that high. So one of the things that they're going to need to do is tighten policy, right, in terms of raising interest rates and reducing activity. But they're not going to be, they're going to have to do that without cutting off lending, right? And best way to cut off lending is to invert the yield curve, right, by raising interest rates on the near term uh, in the uh, policy rates faster than the, the, the long term rates can rise. And unless the Fed directly controls uh, or heavily influences the long end of the yield curve, uh, I think they're going to end up inverting it. So I think uh, they're, they're going to try to avoid it and they're going to try to talk up the end of the, the long end of the yield curve. Um, but fortunately for them, they have uh, the, the policy tools in place already to implement uh, a yield curve control policy through the repo facilities. And so I think what is likely to happen is um, a tightening that chases inflation, but never quite catches it, right? So we see real rates fall, even though long-term rates, uh, excuse me, uh, even though nominal rates are rising and the Fed maintains some sort of positive term yield uh, that that keeps the flow of credit going. And what we're seeing for all the central banks is a very activist policy that is finding, um, of, of direct lending, that is finding most of its, its outlet in the, the quote-unquote green investments, right? But notice that now, you know, it, it, the, um, the European Union has just uh, declared that, that natural gas and, na and nuclear plants are green investments. So everything's a green. So what the central banks are doing is they're setting themselves up to maintain the flow of credit with direct lending to businesses and presumably consumers 
if they screw things up. So they might not get a, 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 a crisis before 2025, but if they do end up resorting to direct lending, then they probably will at some point mess up the capital allocation process and, and, and end up with a, some sort of crisis. But uh, the, the better outcome would probably be that they just invert the yield curve and cause a recession inadvertently. So that's, that's what I'm hoping for. I think that 2022 is going to be probably pretty, um, and, and 2023 are probably going to be pretty inflationary. And uh, there's going to be a political process that has to decide whether we accept recession or more um, activist government via the central bank. So when do you expect interest rates to start rising? And how far do you expect them to go, say, relative to the dot plot that the Federal Reserve mapped out last December? Um, I mean, I think they've pretty much locked themselves into this um, first rate increase in March. Um, if they don't, the bond market will freak out. So I think, you know, and they're, they might, um, I don't think they'll, they'll be as bold as the Bank of England. I mean, one of the things I've been writing about is that out of all the banks, the most intellectually honest and um, sort of uh, outspoken uh, in terms of their own you know, uh, lack of omnipotence is the Bank of England. They're being very honest that it's an uncertain situation and that they're taking things cautiously, but uh, that they can't control the world. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, they were willing to make back-to-back rate increases. I don't think the Fed might be willing to do that at first. Um, so probably in March, and then you get another one in, um, you know, maybe May. But then at that point, it starts to become an issue of has the yield curve flattened out, right? So, so really, I think the big question is when did they start to have to uncloak their um, yield curve control mechanisms and start to, to push the bond market around? And that, that will depend on um, growth expectations, right? So part of that is going to depend on if the Fed, excuse me, if the, if the federal government ends up um, spending a lot of money. We'll see. Um, but if they if it doesn't, uh, then the Federal Reserve is going to have to do something to push that long into the yield curve up. Um, so I, I don't think they'll. In 2022, raise rates, you know, uh, six times, they might get four. But if they're going to do that, then we'll have to see the yield curve control before the end of the year. And to what extent will U.S. monetary policy be independent of fiscal policy? and political considerations in this year, given that we've got midterm elections coming up in November for the Houses of Congress? That's a great question. And I think it's going to be, um, we're, we're, we're going to see who holds the power. There's going to be a, um, a push back and forth. This, uh, the recent uh, uh, resignations in a state of almost disgrace of three of the the uh, Federal Reserve board members um, let the Biden administration have a sudden, you know, uh, inordinate amount of uh, appointments to the board. Um, but there, that's taking place in a, a, a Senate that's divided by 50-50, right? And unfortunately, one of the um, Democratic senators had a mild stroke recently. Um, so it's not clear uh, when he'll be back. And so in that case, if someone gets blocked, the, 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 the Democrats can't just 
um, use the vice president as a tiebreaker. So the people that are going to run the Fed and the people that run the executive branch of uh, the United States government definitely want to work together. <laughs> um, if Janet Yellen is allowed to, um, Leo Brainerd and um, um, Jerome Powell are very, uh, especially Brainerd, uh, are very on board with her views and the, the administration's priorities. So if no one gets in their way, they will work together and they will try to um, uh, you know, implement fiscal policy that um, spends a ton of money that the Fed can then um, allow long-term bonds to go in, out into the market and push up yields. Um, but fate has intervened. So the Republicans have this power to hold things up. Um, and if they hold things up long enough and they, uh, the Republicans end up coming out on top in uh, the midterm elections, which is, which is highly likely, um, then all of a sudden that, that becomes that ability to partner with the White House really calls, becomes called into question. And you're going to likely see the Federal Reserve take more independent, more interventionist policy on its own. So I think they'll do what they need to do no matter what. Um, but whether it has a government of seal of approval or whether it's more just financial engineering is going to sort of depend on uh, uh, um, how fast they get these board uh, members confirmed. And when we think about the um, government bond market, um, where do you see um, 10-year uh, Treasury yields reaching uh, as this year progresses? Uh, and what are the implications of what's happening in the U.S. bond market this year for um, international investors? That's a great question. I think I think the the second question is is the one that I'll take first because I think it's 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 going to drive um, or should drive investors' thought process um, as they're structuring their portfolios. So, what's uh, what's very interesting is that um, as the yield curve sh changes shape, the um, ability to use the bonds that structure that curve as money changes, right? So if the yield curve is very, very steep, right, there's a big difference between owning cash and owning a bond, right? If that yield curve is very, very shallow, all of a sudden, um, there's a lot less of a trade-off. And if someone tells you, oh, you're guaranteed to be able to repo that bond or sell it because someone else can repo it, at a guaranteed price by the government, all of a sudden that bond becomes a lot more like money, right? And so we saw this in 2016 with global yield curves when the Bank of Japan at first implemented negative interest rate policy. It caused yield curves around the world to flatten because it pushed a lot of the investors in the Japanese cash market out into um, uh, the long end of the curve, not just in Japan, but everywhere. Um, but then when they implemented yield curve control policy, it had uh, an effect not only on the yield curve in Japan, but also in the rest of the world. Um, so I think more than focusing on the absolute level of the tenure, I think people should be focused razor sharp on the, the, the spread between the five and the 30, which is what drives 
uh, or I, I, I consider it a better indicator of where the, the 210 spread is going to go. So if we're watching the 530 and it starts to get down to 20 basis points, 10 basis points, banks are going to get nervous. And you can start to expect at that point for the Fed to start taking action and to start trying to push up long-term interest rates. To the extent that they can do that, they will then go forward with more policy rate increases. So I think that will be the key is to watch how how that spread um, develops. And even if you don't expect the spread in the rest of the world to narrow, bet that it will because the, the U.S. is going to be dry, the U.S. yield curve is going to be driving the rest of the world yield curve. And so that that's where I think there's a, a lot of opportunity and a lot of risk where the, the yield curves from all the, the major bond markets are going to be heavily affected by technical decisions by the Fed rather than the fundamentals of the countries themselves. So I think that's definitely the, the, where my focus is going to be for 2022. And is that a recipe for a strong dollar or a weaker dollar, would you, would you say? Uh, well, with the dollar, you know, you always have, it's, it's the, you know, um, the default other, right? So, so it prices as a currency relative to others, which should be the likelihood that the yield curve will, will flatten, right? Should be bearish for the dollar. But the fact that they're going to, or the likelihood that they're going to maintain a certain spread uh, is somewhat um, bullish. And I think whether it ends up being bullish or bearish is going to end up depending on whether there's more financial strain or more real activity strain based on too much inflationary pressure. Um, so I think that's the, if you get a lot of inflation because the Fed doesn't tighten fast enough or isn't, is too nervous about it, then you're going to get a weaker dollar and you're going to get more inflation. If you have a situation where the Fed is able to really take hold of things, but as a result, they cause financial strains in the rest of the world because yield curves are moving different from what they normally would, um, then in that case, you're going to get a stronger dollar because the, the problems that the Fed is causing is going to be chasing others, people out of other currencies and into the dollar just because that's the, um, you know, sort of the, the, the eye of the hurricane, if you will. Brian, thank you for this most interesting insight into the service that is provided by Intertemporal Economics. If we had more time, it would be interesting to discuss in more detail your views about the various risks and opportunities in global financial markets at the current time. The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the Intertemporal Economic Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to their full service. More information is available on request from the Independent Research Forum. Many thanks for listening to this IRF podcast with Brian Pellegrini of Intertemporal Economics. Thanks, David. Thanks, everybody.